Welcome to the History of Art, a podcast. I am your host, Alex. And I'm your host, Dean. And today we are discussing the finale of season one of Rings of Power. It's been a long journey. Uh, we started this podcast back in March of this year, 2022, in anticipation of this show. So it's it's kind of wild to be uh, wrapping up our discussion of it. But all good things must come to an end. So, I mean, I'm upset because my theory was wrong. My very last yeah. minute off the, like, literally yeah. came up with Disa minutes to the end. Not only was not Sauron, but she was not even in the finale. I know. Uh, <laughs> I know. Neither Durin nor Disa. They were last seen together plotting in Moria before Durin daddy chucked the leaf down the hole and woke up a Balrog. Uh, that is a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> We also had no more Arondir, sad face, no more Bronwyn or Theo. Oh, yeah, we didn't see them at all this yeah, episode. They were all just happy family reunion at the Numenorean camp, and that's all we're getting from them this season. And I know everyone's really sad about this, that we got, we got no Kemen in this episode, and he was kind of the star of the season, so... Uh, I'm really curious, where did Kemen go? Yeah, you're making a face like, who the fuck is Kemen? And that's exactly. <laughs> okay. I yeah. thought it was, I thought, I'm not the Lord of the Rings expert, so I thought, did I, who did I forget now? I thought I finally had their names the down. The quote unquote son of Farazon. So, mm. right. So we're going to go through the episode with you one last time for the finale one last here. time. And uh, give you our thoughts and conclusions about the season. Wrap this baby up. So thank you so much for everyone who has stuck with us through this journey, who have listened along with us, who have uh, joined us as far back as the Silmarillion uh, material with Eric Blair and I, and now these Rings of Power episodes with Alex and uh, myself, Dean. Uh, we've had a lot of fun creating this for you. We will be taking a break from Lord of the Rings content for a little bit because we've been binging this to keep up with the show, but we do have another podcast, um, general reading, basically whatever we are deciding to be reading at that moment, Reading Frenzy. You can find us at readingfrenzypodcast.com and wherever you get your podcast. Uh, if you don't like everything you read, you'll probably like something because we are all over the place <laughs> with that one. Yeah, we have a Halloween special episode coming up uh, very soon, just before Halloween, with uh, starring myself and our returning guest named Ethan, and we are covering The Midnight Club by Christopher Pike and the Netflix adaptation that is out now. It has just released recently. And then following that, Alex and I will be doing a... Uh, our review of that other fantasy show that's been out this fall, House of the Dragon Season 1, with a review of the Fire and Blood material that George Martin wrote that the probably uh, won't show be is based as, on. Probably won't be as in-depth as this where we're going over each episode, but I no, no, no. feel like we'll probably end up doing a two-parter to cover yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. So, so tune in to Reading Frenzy if you want to catch some more, some more uh, of Alex and Dean and our zany guests. And we look forward to uh, chatting with you there. So, into the actual finale episode of Rings of Power. We have our first cold open since the premiere of the season. The stranger is wandering into Erangalan, or the Greenwood, which will one day be known as Mirkwood, famous from Lord of the Rings. He pulls out the apple that he's been carrying, and I like that when we were watching this, Alex said, 
he wants to eat it because he's hungry, but it's from Nori. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I don't know that that's actually what was going through his head, but I, I like that interpretation most, so I'm going with it. That's what I feel to be true in my like, heart. Like, in other words, it's clear that he pulls it out and he's being sentimental about yeah. the fact that Nori gave it to him, but I like the fact that he may have also been hungry and he just kind of wants to eat it, but he's forcing himself not to. Um, Alex was also right about the the mystic pretending to be nori rather than nori being bewitched in right. some way yeah exactly so perhaps that plucking the thing from her hair or touching her allowed her to shapeshift into that form in the same way that in a second in the episode she also shapeshifts into the stranger mm-hmm. uh, after she touches uh, the stranger so interesting the shapeshifting is really interesting um in this episode too how because we know there's another famous shapeshifter in this oh, yeah. series but the way the mystics here are portraying it it's really like snap snap you know yep, yep. um very showy mm-hmm. it reminds me of animorphs when i was a kid a series i loved and the only rule in animorphs is you could be any animal that you could touch as long as you could touch it you could transform into that thing and it seems to be like what their power is here she has mm. to be able to touch the individual in some way and then she can appear to be them right so for all we know if sauron's power is similar to this uh, Sauron may have uh, touched someone and no. taken on their appearance. <laughs> of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've already seen the finale, which uh, why wouldn't you? You you know. <laughs> we can go ahead and spoil. Yeah, if you don't know that this is a spoiler zone already, <laughs> welcome to the zone. Spoiler yeah. zone. We might as well get the big, big reveals out of the way uh, just because we're going to be talking about it several times. The two big reveals of who's who in this show very clearly Halbrand turned out to be Sauron and the stranger turned out to be Gandalf. But yeah, the, the three mystics declare in uh, Quenya to the stranger that they are there to serve him and they believe him to be Sauron. And then we get our opening credit sequence and all of us are going, uh-uh, nah, we don't believe that. That's, right. that's too easy. I like how I kind of wish they'd have played with that dynamic more because they were giving you the two Saurons, right? Because at the same time all this is going on, Galadriel is suspicious of Halbrand, and we're seeing that develop. And then we're seeing the mystics with Gandalf. And I wish they would have pushed that parallel a little bit further. Um, And also kind of made us guess, like, oh, snap, which one is it? Because at that point, it's obvious who it is. Like, no one's questioning. Um, That would have been a fun way to handle that and kind of draw it to the end. It's like, oh, it's that one. Yeah, right. Again, missed opportunities with the show are just kind of piling up. Right. We have next a beautiful shot, beautiful shot of Galadriel and Halbrand riding into a Regiant. Uh, this is like one of the most, my fa- one of my favorite cinematic shots. Uh, they're riding into what may or may not be the city of Ost in Edil, uh, which is the city in a Regian where the rings were supposed to be forged. When they arrive in a Regian, we can see the forge is pretty much completed now. Uh, Amazon notations here say that while Linden is built to elegantly integrate with the beauty of nature, Aregion's purpose is to meld such natural forms with a grander vision, to echo the glory of Valinor itself, as well as the great cities destroyed in the First Age. This was interesting to me because I've never thought of Aregion myself as being one of those beautiful elvish cities that, or it's in fact, it's not a city, it's sort of a region, and mm-hmm. Austin Edil is the proper name of the city. But I've never thought of that as being a city that was like 
Gondolin or, right. you know, one of those old elvish cities from the first age. But this is the way Amazon's interpreting it. And that's interesting to me. We see Celeborn and Elrond together. Gilgalad is arriving tomorrow and they don't have anything to show for their work. Celebrimbor is saying, if only there was a way of doing more with less. The sun itself began as something no bigger than the palm of my hand. This is a reference to the fact that the sun in the sky in Tolkien's universe was the last fruit of one of the two trees, Mm -hmm. the golden tree, Laurelin, which was plucked and hallowed by the Valar and set in the sky with someone to guide it around the heavens. That's the origin of the sun. Now, we saw the two trees in the first episode, and you can see how massive those trees were depicted in that episode. And that's how I've always pictured the trees, as being enormous, mm-hmm. right? I picture it, you know those like inflatable human-sized hamster balls that people run around in? Like that, like that big. Yeah, like there would be these, I imagine there would be these huge thr- fruit, exactly. And so when he was like, it would fit in the palm of my hand. I was like, oh, they're interpreting that literally, like just like a normal size fruit. And I was like, I feel like the two trees would have had or massive fruit. that is how he telling the story is interpreting this religious story. <laughs> right. It's not literal yeah. because it's religious. Who Could knows? Because yeah. um, again, we still, in this series at least, haven't had like a really hard hammering down of are the gods literal or are they these like mythical stories? They're still kind of towing the line with it. Where in the Silmarillion, well, it's very, very, very literal. Yeah. The only trouble is that um, uh, so many of these characters, if no one else, have seen Morgoth, who was a Bala. Uh, you know, so even if you haven't seen the good guy, the good gods, you may have seen the evil one. <laughs> yeah, a, but that's what he said he was. Mm. And to justify their fair belief point. in an evil god, there have to be good gods too. Right. Yeah. Fair point. So. Galadriel shows up. Galadriel and Elrond are shocked to see each other. She comes in with Halbrand, of course. The healers begin working on Halbrand. Uh, she tells Elrond that this is the king of the Southlands, and Elrond is surprised and skeptical, I'm sure. He's king of the Southlands. How is it that your path crossed with his? And her reply is, how is it you are here, right? Mm-hmm. We've all just happened to come to this place. And this is another way of saying, like, this is, again, her belief in the will of the Valar or the things that are bigger than fate that she's not necessarily going to name we don't want to get too hokey and religious right but it's the idea well, no, she ha- definitely has like a faith yeah. in like like a predestined she doesn't, path, she doesn't need to you know? explicitly call it out but we see these hints all the time mm-hmm. of like events are organizing themselves and really surprising uh coincidences yeah but another answer at least for why Halbrand met up with her and that why was the king of the southlands with her well the king of the southlands was probably planning it because he's not the king of the southlands right he may have very well intended to be on that raft because he had some foreknowledge that Galadriel would be out there. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But um, Elrond catches Galadriel up on all the stuff that she's missed, and then he apologizes to her for helping put her on the ship to Valinor. He says, in the future, I'm going to trust you more. I'm sorry for not trusting you. Galadriel says that it was not just revenge that drove her to jump ship. She leapt from the ship also because she knew that with her task unfinished, she was not worthy of going to Valinor, which is nice. It's mm-hmm. nice to see a kind of more humble side yeah. of, it's not just like, ooh, I've got too much to do back home, you know. And 
we know that she would be reunited with now we know uh, she would be reunited not only with her brother but with her husband if she really believes he died right. he would be in Valinor yeah. so as and she we doesn't said feel before, worthy of that yeah, yeah she's not ready to go to that kind of life I like that too um, especially because I've talked before about how I didn't really care for the scene yeah. um, the ship scene I mean her jumping up was fine but in general I didn't care for it but this felt better um, yeah. it was a nice and, and a nice fitting scene to have in the finale if we had had the context of all of the, that she was really giving up in that moment, it might have right. hit harder. Exactly, you know, so exactly. On. Which I understand they can't do because mm-hmm. big the, reveals the opening. Um, yeah, but uh, on a rewatch, maybe that scene will hit harder. Mm-hmm. Knowing, you yeah. Know. So she says also that she had no plan when she jumped ship. She just knew she was going to swim, which is interesting because we, you know, we kind of wonder what did you think was going to happen next. She literally had no other thought than that. She admits right. that now, and she said, "I just know I had to swim. She, I, I had to not drown." And she also says, you know, in this extended metaphor of swimming and drowning, she says, "I'm not going to let you drown either." To Elrond. And then we come to the big moment where we we learn who Sauron is. There's uh, no doubting in my mind after this scene, at least. Uh, Celebrimbor is in his workshop, and he hears something, and he says, who's there? And there's this creepy, zooming, slow zoom of the camera in on him, like a sort of horror film, as he walks in and he says, who's there again? And then followed by, reveal yourself. Which is like, you know, it's archaic, but it's also a way of like, it almost spiritualizes it. You know, it's not just like... (laughs) Who's here in my workshop with me? It's like, reveal yourself, you know? (laughs) And uh, then we see Halbrand creeping in, asking for Galadriel. Celebrimbor says, no, she's not here. Shouldn't you be resting? He has this look of confusion and concern on his face that is a bit exaggerated for, you know, just being concerned for a sick guy out of bed. He seems really, like, alarmed. But then Halbrand asks what this place is. Celebrimbor says, this was the workshop of Celebrimbor. So he's already speaking of it as a past thing because he knows they're about to have to pack up and leave Middle-earth forever, which is sad. The Celebrimbor, says Halbrand. He's not here, is he? Already petting the vanity of Celebrimbor. And he's, I love the way Celebrimbor's face lights up. He's just like, ooh. I have a fan. Yeah. And that's exactly the thing we would expect to see when we think of the way Sauron in the lore charmed Celebrimbor Mm -hmm. well as a matter of fact he is he says and he opens the shutter and the light falls in on the forge and uh Halbrand says that the master I apprenticed to used to speak of the wonders of your craft when he realizes he's talking to Celebrimbor now the obvious master that he apprenticed Morgoth the wonder of your craft Mm. and he Right. So the obvious guess here is, and I think probably what the show intends us to go with once we learn that he's Sauron is we're talking about Morgoth. He apprenticed mm-hmm. Morgoth, of course. But in the deeper Tolkien lore, actually, before he was ever swayed by Morgoth, back when he was using his name as a Maya, which was Myron, uh, and uh, we'll talk in a second about how many names he really has had over the years. But when he was called Myron, he was actually apprenticing to Aule the smith god the god of the earth that same guy that the dwarves keep saying the name of when they swear right by Aule's beard right he was the dwarvish creator god he was one of the valar and Aule, it is true was always impressed by the noldoran elves especially celebrimbor's grandfather feanor so it is entirely fit it fits perfectly well into the lore it could go either way though because obviously morgoth is into feanor because he stole his symbols right 
So we don't exactly know here whether he means my original master, Aule, or the master I was swayed on, you know, and mm-hmm. fell under the command of Morgoth. But I think it's cool that that's left open. Yeah. Uh, that he doesn't say explicitly. So one thing that I learned that I was surprised to find out was that Celebrimbor was actually born in Valinor as well. Uh, Galadriel may be the oldest elf that was exiled from Valinor, but she's not the only one. So I did not know this. I don't know if this is true across all of Tolkien's writings, but Celebrimbor was apparently born in Valinor. So there could be others in Middle-earth currently that were born in Valinor. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. Um, And if that's the case... I'm not sure how old he would have been at the time of the exile, but perhaps he even knew who Myron was back in the day. Like maybe he knew Sauron in his older form and just doesn't recognize him as Halbrand, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps he even knew who Aule was, one of you know one of the Valar. So interesting. I mean, yeah. it makes sense timeline-wise. If Feanor's sons were old enough to go to war, they were old enough to be popping out some kids. Not but it's out even it's kids. crazier to think of Celebrimbor being on the ships, being carried across the sea, and then them being burned and like having Feanor uh, carrying his grandchild <laughs> as he returns right. to Middle-earth is an odd image, you know. But uh, anyway, now in the workshop, we see three gems, blue, red, and white. And any fan of Tolkien immediately goes, <gasps> the Elvish Rings of Power, the Sapphire, the Ruby, and the Adamant. But the colors are so primary that they almost look fake, admittedly. Like they yeah. look like, uh, like made out of plastic. There's another reference to the Silmarils when Celebrimbor says... Feanor's jewel craft managed to capture the essence of Valinor. I had hoped to do the same for Middle-earth. That's a cool reference to Feanor again in the Silmarils, but it is an odd line considering that his goal in using the mithril was to capture the light of Valinor in order mm-hmm. to preserve the elves. But now Halbrand sees the mithril and suggests alloying it with another ore to stretch it out, and Celebrimbor is skeptical, saying wouldn't that dilute it? And in fact... Halbrand says, no, it could amplify its qualities. And so here's the moment when Celebrimbor is impressed and begins to want to work with Halbrand. And this suggesting of alloying the mithril with other ores, Celebrimbor calls an intriguing suggestion to which Halbrand replies, call it a gift. (laughs) Alex at this point said that we should have had video live reactions because I got up and started jumping around like a maniac. We can't call him Anatar, but we might be able to make reference to gift, since uh, Anatar means Lord of Gifts. Yep. And so here to me, just like with Gandalf at the end, this was the line that cemented it, and I was like, oh my god. So now we jump back to Numenor. Farazan is speaking about the king. Farazan says, soon he will travel that road which makes an end of every man who walks it. Like, soon he's going to be dead. Black flags will fill our harbor. It will be our duty to forge for him a tomb, granting him the immortality in stone that no man, not even a king, can attain in life. This is an interesting line coming from Farazan, considering what we know from the lore, that his trajectory is to do exactly the opposite of that. His belief is not really that a king cannot etern- you know, obtain immortality, or at least it's not going to be in the future. Isildur's sister, Aarian, is one of the draftsman that was chosen to capture the image of the king in order to create statues and monuments and things for his tomb and so on. Now, this again focuses on the fact that Numenorians, as time goes on, become more and more obsessed with the death of people and preserving their bodies, right? Like the the tombs have to be so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
now that Aerian's in the Builders Guild and she's an artist, she gets to be there. She's we see her drawing the you know image of the king, uh, and she gets time alone with him. Uh, and he wakes up, he grabs her, and he starts speaking very quickly uh, for someone who is on his deathbed. I know what you have been doing in the dark of night when you thought all eyes were asleep, he says. There is still time to warn you, young Muriel. And we realize he thinks he's talking to his daughter. And he tells her, if the old ways of our people are not soon restored, our island will fall. Aarian calls for help. And when she turns back, the king is gone. And for a sec, I thought, shit, man, he just teleported. Um, <laughs> but actually, he's using this key to open a way to the tower that we've seen before with Muriel and Gladriel earlier in the season. Uh, Palantir tells Aarian to go up, but then he says, don't do as I did. I looked for too long. And now he can't separate the past from the present from the future. He's been using the Palantir to scry, I guess. And mm -hmm. that's, as we've mentioned before, it's not something that you can do in the lore. That's the purpose of the mirror of Galadriel, however. Uh, so they're, they're changing that in the story for the show. And he, uh, it doesn't surprise me. You see Crystal Ball, you think future, you right. know. Uh, so anyways, intriguing new plot line where Aarian goes up into the tower. And the Amazon note here in the show reminds us there are artifacts in this tower that date back to the First Age and the heroes of the Edain. Edain is a word meaning the noble three houses of men featured in the Silmarillion. Mm. Um, before, when we were in this tower earlier in the season, we saw what looked to be like Narsil, the sword that will end up in Aragorn's hands, as well as the axe and shield of Tuor, and that is Elrond's grandfather. And apparently what might, may have been the dragon helm of Dor Loman, which belonged to Tuor's cousin Turin. And that same helm we see again here now. Aaron actually pauses before and looks at it for a minute before she approaches the Palantir, removes the cover, touches it. And that is the last we see of the plot line related to all of, all of that this season. So we go back to Aregion just have to shout out that Galadriel's dress in this episode, <laughs> my favorite of the whole I season. I like the chain thing, yeah. Oh my gosh, that chain thing was so cool. It was like <laughs> dripping pearls all over with this cool, and I was like, oh man, that's my favorite. That, that wins the best costume of this show. The costumes the whole season um, in general have been really, yeah, really good. Yeah, they were pretty good. So now there's a debate going on in Aregion of what kind of object should be created using the mithril and the, you know, the other ores. It should be smaller than they had planned earlier. Reminds me uh, in Harry Potter, like, would you take the cloak, the wand, or the... <laughs> right. <laughs> the ring. Yeah, Elrond says scepter, Galadriel says sword, Celebrimbor says crown, because a circular form is ideal, allowing the light to arc back upon itself in one unbroken round, building to a power that is all but unbounded. So in that, we get an explanation for why a ring? Well, one reason is it's circular, and uh, its power will sort of mm -hmm. be infinite in that sense. The crown, though, would be given to Gilgalad, and Gilgalad is, you know, skeptical whether one person should ever have that much power. Uh, and they're like, it's not just anyone, it's you. We right. respect you. You are our high king. And he's like, he does not feel maybe that even he should be worthy of that, because he says, perilous are these whisperings. And in fact, the song playing in this this moment is called Perilous Whisperings in the soundtrack. <laughs> Gilgalad now says that since Mount Doom blew up, the leaves from the tree in Linden are falling faster and faster. Time is running out. He's really getting angry and frustrated with them for asking for more and more time. He's like, no, it is time to pack up and go. We will die. 
and he's very convinced of this. Fire. The mithril plot seems legit. Yeah. And so, I hate it. So do I, yeah. So, Celebrimbor now admits that he needed the help of the Southlander in order to come up with the idea. His suggestions were but the key that unlocked the dam, he says, and that gets Galadriel's attention. The key that unlocked the dam? And then Celebrimbor goes on and he says, we are on the cusp of crafting a new kind of power, not of strength, but of spirit, not of the flesh, but over flesh. The exact words that Adar said in a previous episode. Yep. This is a power of the unseen world, Celebrimbor goes on. And now Galadriel is starting to understand that this game is rigged. Gilgalad commands Celebrimbor to disband the city and return to Linden. Galadriel asks Celeborn where he heard the words of power over flesh. He stammers. He says, I believe those were my words. And <laughs> Such she's a like, like was, oh, I did? Uh, was Halbrand with you? To which the, he says. The Bethlehus? <laughs> you call them the Beatles. No. No, I, I wrote that song. Yeah, yeah. Like when you're in fifth grade and you're like, look at this song I wrote. Yeah. And they're like, you, you mean the Beatles? When I copied Lassie, a novelization of the <laughs> film, word for word, and then I went in and like uh, <laughs> intentionally added some some typos mm-hmm. so that it would look like it was mine. Yeah. I would really make comic books of like South Park plots, but like I would draw my own characters and just be like, look at this funny thing I came up with. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Well, anyway, was Halbrand with you? And he says, what does it matter? It's over. Gilgalad is walking outside when Elrond shouts him down, and he turns around and he is holding Iglos, the spear of Gilgalad, a very famous weapon in the lore that he uses during the last battle against Sauron at the end of this whole bad boy. So we see Iglos for the first time. Uh, the note from Amazon says that indeed this is Iglos and it is covered in Sindarin elvish writing as a warning to his enemies. Elrond is begging the king for more time and he says it's a fool's hope, Elrond. Merely that, nothing more. And so Elrond takes those words and spits the king's words right back at him and he says hope is never mere, not even when it is meager, which, you know, was what Gilgalad had said to him earlier in the season. So clearly the king relents and says, okay, do what you got to do off screen because we cut back to Halbrand Sauron, now turning the wheels of fate and firing up the great forge. I, I am a little disappointed that they didn't introduce any, you know, fantastically powerful group of smiths called the Gwaithi Mirdain. There was supposed to be a group of smiths that were well known in this place before the forging of the rings that would have taken on this task, but instead... We get a bunch of rando extra elves doing the job here in this scene. <laughs> and I was like, who are these guys? I would. Right, I know there's too many characters in this show. I even get it. with this many seasons. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> even with this many seasons, uh, there's only so much. Yeah. Can, but, uh, he, you know, just a, another one of those drop name drops where Celebrimbor could be like, it is the perfect task for the Gwaith or something. I don't know. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was also surprised, you know, my prediction earlier in the season was wrong, that we did not see Feanor's hammer being used to craft these rings. Uh, So I won't say that it is still not in the future going to be used to craft some of the rings, but it was not used to create the three elven rings anyway. So Galadriel's watching Celebrimbor and Halbrand working together, and she's getting real sus. She goes to the librarian of Aregion, i.e. me, and asks for some ancient lore. 
he says the records are limited concerning the mortal kingdoms you know there's like, who cares yeah, humans uh we got some of that way down in the basement i guess i could go dig it up if you insist yeah so this bothered me because beginning of the season she has all these elvish librarians check for the symbol what's this sauron symbol what does it mean you know no one knows what it means and then she's in numenor finds the symbol immediately and is like oh it's it's this you know it's uh the southlands whatever so basically she knows the numenorean library has stuff the elvish libraries don't and then when this librarian comes back and is like oh the line of kings in the southlands was ended she's all like yep yep even though she already knows clearly there's, like, information outside of that. Like, yeah, they were building up. I was like, that was a weak way for her to find out, I feel like. Because just because that library doesn't have the information doesn't mean it doesn't exist, you know? Maybe they just didn't finish the family tree because right, the records are spotty. they didn't finish it or they were wrong. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that guy died. But yeah. there was a second cousin over here he that, like, picked up the heir. mantle and ca- carried yeah. it on. Like... Yeah, well, like it is. It is true that we don't actually see what was on the scroll, so it may have explicitly said there was no heir, and that ended the line for all we know. But it's yeah. A, but how do they know? Because yeah. the Elvis records. I just I don't They're trust spotty. the Elvis records yeah. for like human shit. Yeah, because they, they don't care enough. So so what you're saying in the end is that Halbrand just outed himself. He could have just been like, dude, clearly the records weren't updated because I am descended from the South. Right, <laughs> exactly. It's just like um no. Yeah. 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 I know, I get glad you're all already sus at that point. I just wish she would have... That bit of it seemed like a weak way of like, oh, shit, well, how do we get Gladriel to, like, really come to that conclusion? Yeah. And they're like, well, let's have her, fine. Go to the library. Like, <laughs> fine. The library saves the day multiple times in this show, and I am not mad about that. So mm, Yeah, fine. I'm a library fine. boy. Uh, so here is they're talking Celebrimbor and Elrond walk by and I love that Celebrimbor is saying three weeks for a labor that could take three centuries meaning the forging of the rings uh, <laughs> <laughs> the rings of power and that is all but the three elvish rings are created in the year 1500 okay Another 90 years passes before the three rings are forged. So in the lore, it actually took something like about 90 years, right? From the year 1500 to 1590. So I might just have rewritten the line to say like, nine weeks for a labor that could take like 90 years, right? (laughs) At least if you're going to make the joke, like, you know, make a reference to like the real lore timeline. But so... Halbrand may even have seen Galadriel talking to this lore master because she walks away from him and he's immediately standing there like he just overheard the whole thing and he's like he walks up on her from the shadows and he says don't worry Celebrimbor will find a way and she notes how close Halbrand and Celebrimbor have become lately and he's like just offering whatever humble aid I can and then he goes on about how like to tell you the truth I can't even believe I'm here this is this is just crazy and we you know, if you don't realize what's happening, you might be like, oh, he's just being humble. He's just a humble smith and he's here with it. No, but it's it's smith. completely jarring because of how the character was like as we first met him the whole time. He's like this cocky, like. Right. You know, and now all of a sudden he's so humble. Like, I can't believe I'm here. Wow. Yeah. 
it means something totally different anyway coming from Sauron, right? Because <laughs> it's like, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe you all let me in. You brought <laughs> me right back here to the Elvis, Elvin Smiths and so on. I'd all but given up, but you believed in me. I won't ever forget that. And I'll see to it that no one else does either. And some creepy music plays, and I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't... I, no one will ever forget what you did for me, Galadriel. I was like, uh, okay, I... Sure. <laughs> Back with the stranger now. Uh, the notes uh, for the show give us the give us names for the three mystics. So we're they're called the dweller, the ascetic, and the nomad. The one that's the leader with the short hair is the dweller. The ascetic is the one that has like the big ear-looking headpiece, and then the nomad is the one with the metal helmet on. So the ascetic and the nomad are the only two who speak anywhere in this season. The dweller, the one who seems to be leading them, never says a word at all in the season. So the two speaking mystics explain to the stranger, the more your powers awaken, the more the veil will weaken. In other words, uh, you know, we're here to help guide you through this journey. Uh, they've they've come to welcome him, to serve him, to bring him to their lands. And he gets excited by this because he's like, the, the stars, you know? Mm-hmm. And the ascetic pulls out that shield we caught earlier in the season with the, uh, the stars on it, the constellation. And they call it the constellation, the hermit's hat. And they say it's a, a pattern that is visible in but one place far to the east where the stars are strange, the lands of Rune where you will be known at last for who you truly are. So it's visible only in one place. Again, we have the the flat earth, round earth problem. It's visible only in one place. And I thought, well, I guess even if we're on a flat earth, there could be some magic trickery involved and you can Mm -hmm. only see it from a particular place because there's a lot of magic happening here. Maybe we're not even talking normal stars. But more importantly, I was super excited by the mention of Rune, Mm -hmm. the eastern country. This is like way off the map to the east in uh, Tolkien. And when they said the Far East, what do we know about the two blue wizards? Very little, but we know one of them went into the Far South and one went into the Far East, and that's part of the reason that they didn't make it into the history books very much. And I was like, oh, we do have a blue wizard. Uh, And this, come on, the blue wizards were handed to the Rings of Power writers, right? We have two wizards in the Second Age, Mm -hmm. whereas all the other wizards come in in the Third Age. They're very mysterious. We want to know more about them. They explore the lands to the east and south, places the showrunners have said they admittedly want to explore in this show. And they've, they're wizards which have basically been lost to history, so that's perfect for writing them however they want to. They get to make this story up. But they don't really have the rights to blue wizards. Wait, what? Why not? I mean, they're not in Lord of the Rings. No. All we ever get is a mention of the five rods of the five wizards. But they could get something. They could get something. Mm. They give this little poem about the powers of the stranger now and all the leaves start flying around. And they tell him in Rune he's going to learn to control the elements and gain his true powers as Sauron. And then he starts using too much power and getting really kind of like, you know, they're like, whoa, uh, bring it down a notch. They they knock him out, you know. (laughs) And, uh, in time, he will learn to control his powers, but for now, tie him up. Uh, meanwhile, the four Harfoots have caught up to them. 
right? We had uh, who we had uh, Nori and Poppy and their mother Marigold and the Trailfinder Sadok, right? The Dweller shapeshifts again to trick the Harfoots into coming to rescue who they think is the stranger, tied up like Jesus on the cross. But as they're creeping along, uh, Marigold discovers the true stranger lying on the ground, and she's like, "Row, And bum bum bum, the Dweller changes back into the Dweller. A fight ensues. Sadok throws himself onto the Dweller, grabs uh, their legs, and the Nomad then throws a knife, and it whoosh, uh, takes Sadok in the uh, sort of the abdomen. Sad. Sadok deserved better. Now Nori's in danger of being attacked, and the stranger wakes up and starts using his powers to protect her. Saving um, the day. Yeah. And I guess kind of waking up, too? Like, Yeah. He just comes to his senses, and now he can talk normal and shit. It's nitpicky, but I wasn't a fan of how the dweller's head covering was sort of just, like, glued to their head. <laughs> they yeah, were, the wind as the wind's blowing, blowing and it's just... Because it's literally just, like, a piece of fabric yeah. just sitting there. Yeah. yeah. But they have this uh, magic fight, and the dweller uses their staff to spin the stranger around in a way that you can't see and not go, like, that is the Sauron gandalf fight from the Two Towers. And considering that we now know he's Gandalf, I was like... We don't know that! <laughs> considering that it's very likely he's Gandalf at this point, I'm like, poor Gandalf can't catch a break, dude. Wizards just keep flipping him around in the air and throwing him across the room. Like, if, can, can we stop doing that to poor old Gandalf? Um, anyway. Like I don't know what's Gandalf. So, anyways... The Harfoots are running around. Poppy gets cornered by the Nomad throwing these moon-shaped knives at her. Like, and then Sadok pops up and stabs the mystic in the foot. And she screams this terrifying <laughs> scream. It's like, <laughs> and then all the Harfoots are throwing rocks. And the lead mystic drops their staff. And then they turn and start using fire. And, and then Nori brings the stranger the staff. And the stranger says, get away or he's going to hurt her again. They showed him what he is, he says. But Nori's like, only you can show what you are. You choose by what you do. You're here to help. I know it, she says. Now, the other three foot Harfoots, meanwhile, are about to get roasted by the Dweller. The dweller's walking up with the fire magic. And then the stranger comes to the rescue, and he says, From shadow you came, to shadow I bid you return. In The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf shouts at the Balrog, the dark fire will not avail you, flame of Uldun. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. And then the movie screwed that line up, but we'll forgive them. Um, <laughs> so go back to the shadow, right? And uh, here he says to the dweller, From shadow you came, to shadow I bid you return. So it's pretty similar. Yeah. It could just be a wizard thing, or it could be similar because they're both evil entities working for Morgoth slash Sauron. Look, so, I totally am with you a hundred percent of the way, but I can't. No, live in I denial know, I know. It's we, gonna be it's gonna be Gandalf, <laughs> and like season, yeah. end of season two or end of season three, someone's gonna call him Gandalf, and there's gonna be a big like. Sweeping scores and the music <laughs> as it fades to black, and it's gonna be lame. Mm. It's gonna, they're gonna, I have no faith in this. We'll get to it, but I. <laughs> so the mystics now say, He is not Sauron, he is the other, the Istar, 
which is the elvish word for wizards. He is, and they start to say something more, but Gandalf cuts them off and he says, I'm good. Which is cute. He uses the staff and he, I don't know, casts a spell on the other three, uses the power of the staff, whatever. And And all three mystics, uh, we now see them in what looks like the spirit realm. This is what the spirit realm looks like when you put on the one ring and you step into it and you can see through the cloaks Mm, of the Nazgul. This is exactly what the Nazgul will look like in Lord of the Rings. He sees them for what they are. They're all a bit corpsey, but I noticed some differences. The Dweller has a crown on now, which is interesting since the Dweller is always Mm -hmm. like shaved head and, you know, just wearing a a cloak but now that we see the crown on the dweller as though they were once a ruler uh the dweller is actually the most skeletal and it's interesting that the other two have varying degrees of decay the 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 ascetic looks a bit more corpsey less skeletal and the nomad looks the least skeletal and even still has the iron helm appearing even in the spirit realm Mm. then they all turn into moths another creature that is associated with gandalf of course uh and all the moths fly away uh and it's by the way the moths appear in the lord of the rings films at least right after he has that staff battle with saruman saruman you know banishes him to the top of this tower with his magic staff and then gandalf is trapped up there so he whispers to some moths and then the moths go find the eagles and the eagles save gandalf so uh, it's like harder and harder to deny so he turns the mystics into moths but then the mystics eventually as moths See the error of their ways. They're like, right, we'll be your moth friends. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting origin story of those moths. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. What did you expect to see in the series? The origin story of the moths <laughs> that Gandalf whispers to on yeah. Sauron's Tower? Yeah. So Sadak is still wounded, and now he turns down the offer to be carried back by the others. He says, I'm afraid I'm about to go wandering off trail. Oh my god, this scene was sad. Yeah, but it's it's sweet that he wants to, uh, he accepts his death really quickly and he says, uh, the missus will be waiting, you know, because his wife passed and he's going to be with her. Now, if you don't mind, I'd just like to sit a while, watch the sun come up. I, I was honestly surprised that they killed him off. I would have been totally happy if he had continued it was a disappointment to me but now but it was a beautiful poppy death the for the character finder. yeah and and poppy will be able to fill in his role uh so they have one last sunset as they all sit together and presumably sadok passes away very rapid sunrise as well as alex pointed out when we were watching like damn that was a fast sunrise <laughs> uh so farewell sadok uh, but as the they say the sunrise is faster when the earth is flat <laughs> it's true <laughs> Wow! Yeah, no, that's a very good point, actually. Put it, put that in the evidence pile. We got a flat Earth, folks. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah. Farewell, Sadok, or as the Harfoots will say, he's still with us. So no farewells. Back on the ship sailing to Numenor, we see Muriel trying to learn to navigate without her sight. Elendil comes down to try to help her. She says, "Patronize me like that again, Captain, and I'll have your ship," which <laughs> I laughed at. He says, come, I have you. And she says, and who has you? She tells him, look, with all the stuff that's happened, I would totally understand if you take a leave of duty when you get back to Numenor. And then he says, look, I had a choice in everything that happened, right? I saved the elf. I followed her to Middle-earth. I even let my son go. And I lost my son because of it, right? That's the implication. 
And he chose to do all this because, he says, Elendil doesn't merely mean one who loves the stars. A Great. nice callback yes. to that first episode. Because I love Second that first. Second episode. It was the third. Third episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that episode. I, uh, yeah, that one. The one that happened. Yeah. The first time we saw him. Right. I love that conversation that they had about his name. So, and this is his way of declaring that he is one of the faithful to Muriel. Like, right. no more illusions, no more double speak. I am one of the faithful. And so she confesses to him, she is also, if it was not already clear, by saying, my father once told me that the way of the faithful is committing to pay the price even if the cost cannot be known, and trusting that, in the end, it will be worth it. And he is gets emotional and says sometimes the cost is dear and she just agrees with him and he commits to making sure that this was all worth it come what may and they embrace which i thought was a really sweet moment because i mean she's the queen and Mm -hmm. he's a minor lord so it's nice that they have this moment of like they're buddies yeah volandiel up on top of uh, up on the deck shouts that numenor is now in sight and as they roll into the harbor, they see Farazan's words earlier in the episode of, are true, that all of the black banners have been unfurled in the harbor. And uh, Alex was correct. There are a lot more ships in the harbor. Yeah, because having only five <laughs> boats makes no sense. Uh, maybe you were right that only five were fitted, or maybe these are all the smaller boats. They don't take in greater ocean-faring journeys. I'm not sure, but... Um, we then cut to Farazan, who is now sitting beside the body of the king, who is dead. And this is the last time we'll see Numenor this season. Back in Eregion, there is an explosion as Celebrimbor is trying to do the forging. They're trying to, like, use pressure yeah, to, to use force. force the metals together, and it's not working. Yeah, and Galadriel comes in. She's like, why don't you guys just cool it off, take a break a little bit? And then Halbrand comes in. He's like, no, 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 no. You guys are using too much force, right? Things need to be drawn or coaxed together. It's an interesting metaphor because that's exactly this, the strategy that Sauron is trying right now, right? He's using deception and appearing as Halbrand. Mm-hmm. He's got his whole plan to He's a little buddy. befriend everyone. And He's everybody's little buddy. Coax them together. The librarian walks into the room now and uh, asks for Galadriel. And I was like, way to keep it secret, buddy. Um, <laughs> couldn't you catch her when she wasn't in the forge? Hey, Galadriel, with, yeah, I, got I, got those, the, I got those uh, papers you wanted. That right? stuff yeah. you wanted. Uh, but from the scroll, as we talked about, she learns that the line of Southland kings was broken. There was no heir. And that line ended a thousand years ago. She's learning this down next to the banks of the... River Glanduin, which is a cool call out from an actual geographical location in Tolkien. Halbrand comes down, finds her there, and he says, ah, we realize it's too much power for one object. Instead of one object, they're going to make two, first of all. And instead of crowns, they're going to make it smaller, which totally makes sense because if there's too much power trying to go into one, into a crown, you know, let's make it ring size. That'll definitely uh, hold more power. But perhaps Sauron is now thinking that with two objects, he can use one, Galadriel can use one, we can both have a ring, babe. Now Galadriel calls him out. She's like, who are you? And he's like, you know who I am. She's like, who are you really? There's no king of the Southlands. The last one to bear the symbol died a thousand years ago. And he's like, I told you I found it on a dead man. He just didn't say a thousand years ago. (laughs) So now we review... At least three arguments here that fans may have made throughout the season when they were debating the for and against uh, Halbrand being Sauron. So the first one is, well, he saved her on the raft. 
And Halbrand says, no, you saved me, Galadriel. Second argument, well, you convinced Muriel to save the men of Middle-earth. And he's like, no, you convinced Muriel. Mm -hmm. I wanted to stay in Numenor, which Alex actually pointed out during that episode. She was like, oh, he wants to stay in Numenor? That guy is Sauron. Right. (laughs) And then the the third one is, she says, you fought beside me. And he's like, I fought against your enemy and mine, Adar, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't like him any more than you did. So Galadriel is hearing all of this with horror and realizing, like, she has willfully overlooked his his true nature the whole time. So she says, tell me your name. And I love this line. He's like, I have been awake since before the breaking of the first silence. In that time, I have had many names. And I was like, oh, that's the perfect way to respond to that question. So here are some of the names that Sauron has taken over the years. Myron, Anatar, Artano, Aulendil, Gorthaur, Zigur, and of course, Sauron. And he's also been referred to by plenty of other things like the Eye, the Enemy, the Shadow, the Necromancer, the Dark Lord, the King of Men, etc. The Enemy is lame. That doesn't count as a name. <laughs> that could literally just be Greg. <laughs> God damn it, Greg, he took all my sheep. You are now the Enemy. She tries to stab him. He grabs her arm. And then when he lets go of her, she sort of falls down and, well, boom, she's in Valinor where we last saw her as a child in the first episode. This is an interesting trick that he's capable of, of kind of just throwing someone into a dream world. Yeah, he gets into your mind, like the Scarlet Witch in Marvel. And, uh, you know, she possesses the mind and makes you think you're somewhere else. And that's kind of what Sauron is doing here. That's totally in line with his his powers. And I I loved the sequence because I was like, yep, that seems like the kind of thing he would do Mm -hmm. to sway you. So she sees who appears to be her brother Finrod, and she's not deceived. She she immediately says, get out of my mind. She knows what he's up to. But then she makes the mistake of turning to actually look at her brother Finrod, yeah. and it still works. She's so happy to see him. He says all these nice things about her, you know, you know about all the things that she's accomplished. But then he twists the story, and he says he learned that Sauron's task was actually to ensure peace. He was seeking a power not to destroy Middle-earth, but to heal it. Just like your fellow elves are doing at this very moment. You needn't lie to them. Simply let the work proceed. Which, weirdly enough, is what she ends up doing. But let's get there when we get there. And he says, Remember what I whispered to you here under this very tree, which we remember was something like, sometimes you have to touch the darkness, right? And this is a Sauron's twist on what her brother actually said, right? There's a difference between touching the darkness because darkness comes along and you have to face it and choosing to be a part of the darkness, right? Mm -hmm. He's just conflating these two things. He pleads with her as she rejects him and starts to walk away and he he screams. It's it's actually kind of scary. He's like, look at me! Yeah! And as he says it, we snap from Valinor now to the raft in the middle of the ocean where Mm -hmm. she met Halbrand. And it was Halbrand shouting as well. This is where Galadriel and Halbrand, of course, first met. He says he's her friend. She says, you're a friend of Morgoth's. And then he says, when Morgoth was defeated, it was as if a great clenched fist had released its grasp on my neck. And in the stillness of that first sunrise, at last I felt the light of the one again. And I'm really kind of moved by that line because... 
You never think of Sauron as someone who is capable of redemption, but it seems like he's suggesting when Morgoth was defeated, I began a redemption arc legitimately. Like I, I didn't want to just be another Morgoth. You they know? play with that, you yeah. know, like give him some that gray, you know, of like, no, I was trying to redeem myself, and literally because of my past actions, no one believed I was capable of that. Right. And with not a single person believing in me. Well, screw it. I'm just going to go dark. We're, we're all in. Yeah. Well, and I think there's a good possibility that's the case because we still have the entire Numenor plotline coming mm-hmm. with, you know, him trying to get into the good graces. And he can't come in as Sauron. Like, he's got to come back, come in. Well, he could come back as Halbrand. Yeah. And be like, well, even as Sauron, even if people knew that he was Sauron, he could be like, he could use lines like this to convince people. Like, look, when Morgoth went, when he was cast out of the universe, like mm-hmm. this, I believe this. Well, was they my also chance to create right, like a cult you know? of Morgoth and Numenor too. Eventually, right. so he could go as Sauron and just woo them. Yeah. Um, to his ways. So yeah, yeah, there's a ton of ways for that to go. But anyway, continue the Galadriel dream sequence. Mm-hmm. He continues and he says, "And I knew if I was to be forgiven, that I had to heal everything that I had helped ruin." She says, "You can't fix all of this damage that you've done and he's like no 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 no. that's not what you told me right you believed in me um i told you that i did evil and you didn't care and she's like that is not look you deceived me okay i didn't know you were freaking sauron okay and uh i told you i had done evil you didn't care because you knew that our past meant nothing weighed against our future what is this future in the reflection of the water, we can see Sauron in his truer form as a dark, tall, terrible lord and Galadriel standing beside him. And then he starts giving her this whole line about like, no one else can see you for who, who you are. I alone can see your greatness. I alone can see your light. And she's like, clearly she's sort of getting tempted by this. And she's like, mm, you would make me a tyrant. And he was like, I would make you a queen. And he pulls language from the Lord of the Rings fair as the sea and the sun stronger than the foundations of the earth and i kind of got chills at this moment because that's another key line that people know from even the lord of the rings film when galadriel is tempted by the ring and then rejects it in the fellowship of the ring she talks about what she would be like if she had the power of the ring and she says uh, you would have a queen, you know, stronger than the foundations of the earth. And I was like, oh, my God, it's the same lines. I love that. Like, oh, she yeah. clearly has taken this into herself and never forgets it. And, you know, thousands of years later is still thinking about mm-hmm. what that choice would have meant for her. So when she finally rejects it one last time with the ring of power, she feels like she's become worthy and she can go with Frodo and Bilbo mm-hmm. and Gandalf to Valinor at last. It's beautiful. So, but who would Sauron be? My king, the Dark Lord, she says. And he's like, no, 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 not dark. And he, I like that he uses this even to tempt her a bit more. He's like, you once told me that we were brought together for a purpose. This is it. You bind me to the light and I bind you to power. So not only do you get power, but you have the pleasure of knowing that you turned Sauron, right? You're making Sauron good. Mm-hmm. Like you're the one who turned him to the light. And together we can save Middle Earth. She's like, save, or are we talking about ruling it? He's like, "Uh, what's the difference? And she's like, (laughs) and that is why I will never be at your side. He spoke one word too many. He's like, saving the world, ruling the world. It's kind of the same, right? No. But in my head, I was thinking, like, didn't 
in the lore, Galadriel like leave Valinor because she wanted realms to rule of her own, <laughs> like, or at least you know that's what it said in the lore. I don't know if that was really her motivation, but but then Sauron's like, this the shadow is going to continue to spread. You're gonna need my help, and then he starts. He turns to threatening, and he's like. What are they going to say when they found out you were Sauron's ally this whole mm -hmm. time, right? They're all going to turn on you. You don't have anybody but me, right? This is a very abusive relationship <laughs> immediately, right? And now Galadriel finds that she's back under the water. She's drowning. And in this scene before, Halbrand swam down and rescued her. There's no one to rescue her now, right? She's just going to drown there. But what did she say earlier in the episode? She said to Elrond, I'm not going to drown. I'm not going to let you drown, right? And now mm -hmm. Elrond is the one who saves her literally oh, from nice, drowning. Yeah. He pulls her out of the River Glanduin where apparently she fell in this spell, you know, as she's talking to Halbrand. She's not really sure if it is Elrond. She's really tripping out with all these mysterious disguises. So she's like, when did we first meet? And he says, the seaside, when I was first orphaned. And I was like, oh. And then he's like, I was alone, a young half-elven boy without friend or kin. And I was like, what, what happened to your brother? Right, right. <laughs> Who's the other orphan? What happened to Elros? Uh, without kin? Alone? Uh, okay. That's an odd line, because he'd still have his brother at that point yeah, when he, he was first orphaned. Yeah, so weird, but... He says, you gave me water, and I know this is a stretch, but I was like, oh, Galadriel first met him by giving him water, and he bears the ring of power that represents water. That's mm -hmm. cool. She asks for Celebrimbor. Elrond says Celebrimbor should almost be finished, and she's like, oh, no, and she runs to the forge, right? Elrond knows something is up, though, because he's like, where did Halbrand go? And now Galadriel says, he's gone. I doubt he's coming back, and if he ever does come back, None of us are to treat with him again. She doesn't give any more info. Elrond tries to dig. He's like, mm. and she's she basically says, "You promised you'd trust me on things in the future. Remember that." And he's like, "Yeah, but it's a little hard." <laughs> yeah, but you're being a little sus right now. Yeah, and she's like, "Look, if it was easy, it would involve trust." And I'm like, "Okay, all right." <laughs> so then Celebrimbor's like, "Uh, so do we go ahead with the forging of the rings?" And Galadriel's like, no. And then she says, we need to make three. And I was like, what is happening? Right? One will always corrupt, she says. Two will divide. But with three, there is balance. And I'm like, why, why don't we just not make the ring? Can we, can we just not right, make them? Right, 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 right. But I guess Galadriel, like Elrond and the rest, have bought into the idea that we have to have the mithril to save our immortal souls, whatever. So the music starts, and this is the first time also, we hear... Also, I don't get it, because if the whole point is, like, the elves need to be, like, bathed in the light of the mithril, right? Mm -hmm. How does three rando elves having fancy rings save right. everybody in right. the elves? Like, unless this there's, whole plot line is unless stupid. Unless there's some sort of belief that they can use the power to, like, create an aura, uh, which, in a sense, is kind of what Galadriel does with her ring of power. She does sort of have a kind of magical aura around Lothlorien that keeps it a little bit more timeless than the rest of the world. So, and, and Elrond does a similar thing with Rivendell, and the third ring goes to Círdan, who sort of does the same thing with the Havens. Like, these are the three big places in the Third Age. Right. Yeah, so I guess we'd have to theorize something like that. Like, the rings are intended to extend this power within a certain radius. Ra you know... <laughs> 
but it's silly yeah um I'm I'm still I'm I'm still waiting to find out that the mithril thing is not what we have it been better told, there's a ch- there's a hope. chance but I don't know after the season I mm. Galadriel says the powers we forge today must be for the elves alone untouched by other hands and now Celebrimbor tells her that uh, the purity of the other ores we're going to mix with the mithril is crucial I need gold and silver of the most exquisite quality I need gold and silver from Valinor. And I was like, a uh, contrived plot device to get the dagger to be melted, but sure, I'll buy it, and I think it's cool that she has to sacrifice the dagger. Um, mm-hmm. A little bit more clever writing to get that sacrifice to be made would have been nice, to, other than just throwing that plot line in, like, oh, yeah, we need uh, gold and silver from Valinor. What? Who came up with this I recipe? I also don't buy that there isn't any more. Yeah, right. That's that... not the only thing we've got, surely, from Valinor. Um, so nice idea, but maybe poorly executed, but still, uh, nice to have the dagger story come full circle here and, ooh, full circle. Look what we did. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh. That's it, boys. We can go home now. Dagger came full circle. So, uh, true creation requires sacrifice, that line from earlier, right? And, uh. And the forging begins. And that is the last of the dialogue that we'll hear from any of these characters. But first we got back to the Harfoots before the episode ends. And man, is it starting to look like the Shire in this area, right? The stranger and uh, Nori are sitting under the tree in a field of what's probably Eleanor and Nifredil flowers. And uh, the stranger says he still only has these fragments and impressions of his his, uh, memory of what came before he crashed on Earth in this meteor and he needs to go to rune to learn more she's like well they were they didn't even know who you were are you sure about the rune thing like are you gonna find what you think you are there and he's like no when they said i needed to go to rune uh, he knew that they were speaking truth with a certainty that he can't explain and once again i was like blue wizard he knows it's his destiny to go into the east uh and she says like what's that word that they called you istar and he's like hmm istar yeah, that means wise one, or, for those who haven't been paying attention, wizard. He has become super eloquent all of a sudden, yeah, right? Yeah. Because like before he didn't understand what the word peril meant, but now he says this line, and I quote, Betimes, our paths are laid before us by powers greater than our own. In those moments, it's our task to make our feet go where our heart wished not to tread, no matter the perils awaiting us along the way. I was like, <laughs> "Dang!" Like, he yeah, just... I know it's weird hearing him talk fancy. <laughs> yeah, well, like okay, after right. this season of him being like, "Migratum, migratum." <laughs> so, and the notes from Amazon here say that there are many stories that have been told of the wizards or Istari in later ages, but not all of them have yet been heard. I, I don't know what that means. Or blue wizards, sure. Um, the wizard now says to Nori that adventures are shared. You know, he wants her to come along, but she's like, you know what? Nah, I've had enough adventuring for a lifetime. So, and it cuts and we're like, oh, wow, they are going to separate. That's interesting. So they go back to the rest of the Harfoots. We learned that Melva is a really bad wayfinder to replace Sadok because she's holding the map upside down and doesn't mm-hmm. even know it. Poppy corrects her. And then we get the hint that Poppy may become the new trail finder. Which I love. I yeah. love that for her. Nori comes back to her family. And the family has made her a backpack. 
Her dad says, you're a part of something bigger now. And her mom says, he needs you and you belong out there. And I'm like, cute, 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 cute. I like that Nori was a bit resistant to go initially. Well, it's a nice kind of development for the character too, because at the beginning, like, if she would have been asked this question at the beginning when we see her, she would have been all in. Like, oh, hell yeah. yeah, I'm craving an adventure. Yep. And now after that taste of it, she like saw the risks. She saw Sadak die, mm-hmm. you know? She realized adventure isn't all fun and games. There's a lot of perils. Um, <laughs> and she's kind of been like, all right, you know what? I'm going to be like a responsible doll. I'm going to stick with my family here. And then they're encouraging her like, you know what? No, no, yeah. go. So it's a, it's a nice um, character development. This was the moment that I teared up in in the finale and the only moment that really got me because like Sam is of course my favorite character. I mean, who doesn't love Sam? And this is the very, like Poppy's the very Sam character, right? And so she's like fretting about Nori in a way that Sam would do being like, did you pack your lantern? Just being like, are you okay? Mr. Frodo, do you have everything, you know? And as they're about to have like a moment together, Dilly grabs Nori and pulls her away and I was like my I felt like the tug on my heartstrings like you're trying to say goodbye to your best friend in the world and like your sibling pulls you away and you've got all your families now fussing over you and stuff and you just want to like go talk to Poppy then she has a little moment again with her family where her dad says I haven't taught you a thing and then she starts listing off all the funny things that he did teach her like you know put out fire with sand and water and don't pee by the river uh, you know, a Harfoot without manners is like a, you know, square wheel, which is cute because of that earlier line where he's like, well, there's your problem. That's supposed to be round, you know, <laughs> which we laughed about. Funniest joke in the whole show, um, referring to the wheels uh, on the carts. Uh, but now in like Largo tearing up also got me just like seeing her dad get emotional. And then they, you know, have this cute little secret handshake together she and her dad and she tells her dad for all the advice he ever gave her she's like i was listening to all of it father and i like this is the moment where i'm like holy shit they're doing the lord of the rings goodbye like the last full hour of the return of the king where we're all just sobbing and they're all saying their goodbyes i'm like they're managing to get this in the finale and it doesn't feel super contrived It, it really does pull on the heartstrings and uh Then when she says goodbye to her mother now, uh, her mother quotes things that Nori herself said earlier in the season, like find where the river runs, where the sparrows learn their songs. Like her mother was listening and paying attention to what she said too. And she says, I will mother and I'll be careful. And her mother just laughs and she's like, no, you won't. (laughs) You'll be bold. And when the whole family embraces, there's, it almost feels like time slows down for a second in that shot and it's really beautiful. And then her mom's like, get, get on out of here before we, before you lose your nerve. And her dad's like, before we lose our nerve, right? And this is the moment where she's like, she, now she's walking away. And then Poppy comes back. And she's like running. And she's like, wait. And I was like, oh, thank God. Poppy's going to come with her. No, but I had the not. opposite reaction. Did you? Yeah, I don't want her to go with her. That's too uh, Lord of the Rings. We don't need a Sam yeah. Frodo dynamic. We want to change it up. Ugh. Like. We need to stop playing on the, hey, yeah. it's Gandalf. You like Gandalf. No, it'd be too much. I'm glad Poppy stayed. Also, like, what would be the point of, like, you can be the Pathfinder if then she just goes and right. yeah. screws off? Well, it turns out she's not, she's not coming on the journey. Instead, she's here to deliver the most heartbreaking line of the entire first season. 
why does everyone I love the most always have to oh go away? Oh my god, yeah. And I just, you, you, if you were paying attention earlier in the season and you caught the fact that her entire family is gone, is dead. Yeah, they died in like a mudslide. Yeah, so it's especially painful to think about what Poppy goes through here, losing her best friend in the whole wide world. But Nori says to her, well, if we didn't, we would never learn anything new. And uh, one of the things that Poppy says is like, eh, he's a good friend in a spot. Like, he's going to take care of you, that that wizard guy, right? And she's like, not so good as you. Like, <laughs> so Nori leaves. Did you want to say more about that, by the way? Or is that no, all? No, that's all I got. If so I had as, more, I forgot. So as Nori's leaving, she goes up. She meets the wizard, the stranger. He says, they're all waving at you. She's like, if I turn around, I'm never going to be able to leave, right? He's like, well, then you should lead. And she's like, oh, man, my feet are heavy as iron. I don't have any idea which way to go. And then he sort of like looks around all confused. And I think this was the point at which you said, I'm glad that he's still a little bit uh, crazy because <laughs> now that he's got, he's he's been jolted by his encounter with the mystics, we don't want him to be too eloquent. We still want him to be a little kooky, like yeah, a proper yeah, wizard, right? Exactly. So he's like, you know, sniffing around. <laughs> he's like, oh, there it is, you know? She's like, uh, are you sure? And he's like, not entirely, <laughs> which is perfect, you know. But he says there's like a sweet smell on the air in this direction. And then we get the line, the the beyond a doubt confirmation. Uh, when in doubt, Eleanor Brandyfoot, always follow your nose. And this is a thing for anyone who... Or it could who, just be a thing that wizards say. Yeah, well... And for anyone who's confused, why does that confirm Gandalf? If you're watching the Fellowship of the Ring, when they get turned around in the minds of Moria, uh, Gandalf says this to Mary. Uh, when in doubt, Mary Adok, always follow your nose. So, sure, it could be a thing that wizards all say to each other, but it seems like a very pointed line drop for a reason at the very end of the season for everyone who knows. Uh, but I would love to find out, oh, they've psyched us out and actually they're blue wizards. But honestly, if they're going to do that See, much psyching out, I don't know if I care. I <laughs> don't think the showrunners are capable of a good reveal right. either. Like, I think what's going to happen, like I said before, if it's Gandalf, I'd be fine with it if they never use the name Gandalf. Because yeah. one, I don't think he had that name this early. And two, it's just like a lo- nice little nod to the fans. Like, yeah, it's Gandalf, but we're not going to rub it in your face. Right. I do not trust them to do that. So the episode ends in Regian. The dagger is melted. The, the three rings are forged. And when they drop the piece of mithril into the forge, it is a not-so-subtle reference to the Eye of Sauron as it spins around and fiery and the mithril being the center of the eye. We see Elrond pacing around uh, anxiously. And he goes down to the river to think. And he finds in the water the scroll that Galadriel had earlier. He looks at it, he reads it, he knows something is up now. He starts putting together, apparently, you know, the breaking of the line of southern kings with Galadriel's words that Halbrand is not to be trusted. And he takes the scroll and he walks back to the place where they're forging the rings. And there, again, there's no dialogue at all in this scene, um, just the music and just, you know, watching closely what's happening. And the three rings that are being forged, they have a different appearance from those that were used in the Peter Jackson films, even Nenya, the most well-known. And that's not unexpected. They kind of warned us that they were going to change the way that certain things looked, that even things that had appeared in the movies. And to be fair, the three rings are barely seen in the movies most of the time. 
they're being hidden by the three characters that uh, to, that bear them. But we see in all glory the three elvish rings, and as we look at them for the last time, we cut to the eye of Sauron. And I was like, this episode would have more appropriately have been called the eye uh, rather than the last episode. But now Halbrand or Sauron, as he's been revealed, is walking in a dark cloak toward the fires of Mount Doom into the black land, into Mordor. And so with that, season one of the Rings of Power comes to an end. And bum, bum, bum. that is it. We that's that's all we're getting. Ending sounds. Yeah, so our general thoughts on this season overall. I thought, I hear a lot of people saying, eh, better than The Hobbit, not as good as Lord of the Rings. And I That's a fair with, assessment. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, a good, we'll see how the mithril thing goes. Yeah, <laughs> like that's, right. That's the biggest. And I, perhaps I'm biased, uh, and I know that this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but... I do certainly enjoy certain aspects of this a lot more than Jackson. Uh, and that could be because it's just the newest thing. We've yeah. watched and rewatched Lord of the Rings. Um, but it does capture the what I'll call holiness of Tolkien in a way that I feel like Jackson doesn't do as well sometimes. Jackson does it in the really syrupy way that you would expect when you watch this kind of a fantasy where there's all the long haired elves in robes mm. and all these things. And this updates that a little bit in a way that feels to me more exciting. And one way that that's really apparent to me is the difference in score. I was really skeptical when Howard Shore was only doing the title, the opening sequence track and the score's I, been great yeah and then Barry McCreary blew me away with the score the first time I listened to it I was like eh, it's okay mm -hmm. but then the more I've listened to it and the more it's been paired with scenes from the show right. and I'm realizing the way that he did exactly that thing that I talked about earlier in this podcast of associating a strong theme with each character mm -hmm. and then weaving those themes together in really interesting ways later on in the show and now it just it almost gives me chills in different scenes when all of a sudden Elrond's theme or Galadriel's theme kind of floats in just enough to uh, you know kind of give you that feel of the character uh, so it was really really brilliant music a really beautiful set pieces oh yeah the set the whole oh, season is gorgeous yeah especially for like how many places around the map they were hitting um and different sorts of settings and cultures behind those settings. I thought they were all really, really great. I think Moria is fantastic. Out of all of those, that's probably the standout for me, I okay. would say. I really, really like the way they, like the light underground, and it's just mm -hmm. so, it's just felt the most magical, I guess, to see on screen. Yeah. Um, I mean, everywhere was like really, really gorgeous, but that especially. Right. And the costuming, costume and design, mm -hmm. very, very nice. Yeah. Yeah, if I have complaints, it feels like the writing is what is missing. And there's some, you know, the showrunners have focused on the spectacle, you know, these grand sweeping 
orchestral pieces mm-hmm. and beautiful uh, scenery and set pieces, but the writing, some the of the dialogue of is it, just kind of yeah. Like, well, what happened? And we know that they're writing dialogue most of the time from scratch. Yeah, which it's quite an achievement knowing that they're not working from book material that they're having to arrange this themselves uh, in large part, but. And knowing that, I give them a lot of slack with the dialogue. But at the same time, when the backbone of the whole thing, the writing, the the logic moving from episode to ec- episode, the mm-hmm. character motivations, when those things, when I really have to sit and think about why a character is doing something or what this strange plot device is mm-hmm. they've introduced in order to move the story forward, that to me is a weakness. And it seems really curious when they they have five guaranteed seasons that mm-hmm. they can map out all of their plans they don't have to rush anything right like they they have the framework they have what they need laid in front of them there's no real excuse for unclear motivations from the main cast or clunky plot devices to move the story forward like <laughs> mithril like <laughs> right like what's happening there? You you have everything you need and every green light from Amazon. Like I don't understand why this would right. happen other than like these are bad choices by the producers and that worries me for the rest of the show. Granted it's season 1, it could turn around and I think a lot of shows in a lot of cases season 1 is the worst season. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. and it'll pick up and gain pace. But for a fantasy series, I don't know if that's as true. And I don't know. For a season that should have just been like laying groundwork, introducing plots and characters and getting us hooked, it seems to have done more to just like piss people off. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of people were saying before the show started, you got to wait, you got to watch and watch more than just an episode. So these are these are judgments that we we have. I I feel like (laughs) we've we've watched a full season to be able to give it its chance. Uh, That's not to say I'm not of course, I'm going to watch the whole Mm show. Uh, I'm I'm with it. But, you know, whether or not I feel like it's worthy of the work of Tolkien, as it's a worthy adaptation is another question. Um, I mean, I said very early on, I think first episode going into this show, because we, of course, have the competitor fantasy series, which, mm-hmm. yeah, we have Hot D. Um, <laughs> and going into this, I had a lot higher expectations for Tolkien just after having read like some of the news articles we talked about how the producers are such Tolkien nerds and seem to be really wanting to go into this with like respect for the source material and right. whatnot and to do the fans proud and knowing um, preconceived notions about how Hot D's predecessor dropped the ball hard. I really, really thought that this series was going to have it out of the gate. And honestly, uh, we still have one more episode of Hot D, but I am more captivated by that series so far, which is kind of a bummer. Granted, that's me personally. I've, I've like, this is the series I actually read. I haven't read Lord of the Rings. I've read Game of the Thrones. Um, yeah. I'm a, I've been a bit more invested in that series, but I was really, really disappointed in how the original went, and I'm wondering if that almost is a benefit for that show. Not to go into that for too long, but right. I feel like they knew, oh, crap, we really ruined the last one. We've got to get it we right this time. To, yeah, exactly, yeah. where um, these producers are just like, yeah, they don't really have like such a great failure. Like People didn't like The Hobbit, but it wasn't so like 
trash talked. It wasn't as dragged as that last season of Game of Thrones. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. doesn't have quite as much notoriety. And they themselves have not had the failure yet. So if this first season doesn't come back with the kind of numbers that they want or the kind of critical response that they want, maybe they this will be adjust. the lesson that they can yeah. bounce back from. Yeah. It's not too late. They've got four four more seasons. They have a plot to, planned out, but that doesn't mean they can't take some yeah. critiques and be like, Well, you know what? Let's rewrite that mithril plot line and make it all a mm-hmm. fake out by Sauron because people really hate that. Yeah. Um, or, but some showrunners are just like, no, screw you, the end to it. No, it's going to make sense in the end. I swear to God. And then it flops anyway. Yeah. Anyway, I'm less it does, hopeful, uh, but I am trying to remain open-minded because it is just season one of a five-season series. Right. It does, uh, it did surprise me that, because uh, I also felt, okay, the IP of The Lord of the Rings is when you... When you handle that, that is cash money right there. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, it's cash money, baby. <laughs> <laughs> whereas the competitor was bouncing back from you know the the a really unhappy oh, fan total base. Tumble. Yeah, yeah. Our friend Ethan uh, messaged me and said, you know, the hardest to make a success absolutely dominates the one that should have been a gimme. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's kind of a kind of a big one eighty that no one expected, but yeah. Uh, I think even as a Tolkien fan, I've I've definitely been more impressed by uh, Hot D this season. Um, I will say, I feel like if if we're gonna do like a little bit of comparing the two, um, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power has really really shown much more elaborate sets and settings and world building like around those sets. Like Numenor is crazy and very distinct. Moria is crazy and very distinct. Right. Um, the Southlands even feel like yeah. very every setting is very distinguishable. Each is very like gorgeous and thought out and really detailed and planned. Um, granted, most of the series in Hot D so far takes place in King's Landing in one set, but when we do see other places, it doesn't quite have that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think visually stunning, even with dragons i'm a little bit more like wow with rings of power but for substance yeah for for the quality of writing yeah. and the feeling that it's it, it really gives me something to want to think about when the show's not on mm-hmm. which uh rings of power i kind of like okay I, you know i move on when the episode's over and that right. could just be me but um i do get the impression that this show despite what the showrunners said in interviews which we talked about in our you know several episodes leading up to the show Mm -hmm. they said you know we are not working with peter jackson we are not necessarily trying to work our this is not just a prequel to the jackson films we're we're nodding to them we're acknowledging them but that's the extent of it and i get the impression that this was actually written for peter jackson lord of the rings fans rather than tolkien fans uh, there's lots mm. more callbacks to Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and the specific moments in his films than there are anything in actual I Tolkien lore. I don't necessarily fault that from a showrunner standpoint, though, because that's which one's going to have more of an audience? Yeah. Because you know anyone that's read Tolkien has seen those movies, right. but not everyone that's seen the movies have read Tolkien. Exactly. Um, I don't blame them. I just, I'm, I'm recognizing it as this is a show written for casual Tolkien fans 
who have seen Lord of the Rings and will get excited mm. by, oh, I know what Mordor is. And, oh, I know Gandalf. I remember him. Rather than the, the people who were going like, oh, is that the sigil of Feanor? You know, right. like, <laughs> it's There's, a very different crowd. They've also, the showrunners have mentioned how, like, what brought them into Tolkien. And it was mostly, like, the Peter Jackson films and such. And they want that to be this generation's introduction to that material. Yeah. Um. So... They want a lot of people that are completely fresh, and maybe you haven't even seen the Lord of the Rings movies yet, because we forget that came out two decades ago. Mm, yeah. Two decades ago? Two decades ago. ago, yep. Another thing that I noticed is that they told Stephen Colbert, the showrunners, that is, that they weren't going to be pulling things from the third age because they had so much to cover in the second age, but that's exactly what they've done, right? We've got basically Hobbits in the second age, we've got basically Durin's Bane in the second age, and... Perhaps most strangely of all, we've got Gandalf inexplicably in the Second Age. And these things, it just feels like they're capitalizing on the success of the Lord of the Rings and these really recognizable things from the Third Age that just don't belong in the Second Age. I want to say one analogy that I think has been sticking in my brain, and that is to draw a comparison between the things of quality I notice in House of the Dragon and things that I felt were lacking in rings of power and that Mm. is a comparison between how the cinematic universes have been handled between dc comics and marvel yeah that's really i was a staunch dc comics fan my entire comics reading life and when the mcu came around i was sort of rebelling against it out of principle i watched all the films but I was like, but my my heart is still with batman superman wonder woman all the greats and dc And when their cinematic universe started with Man of Steel, I was 100% behind it. I even liked, you know, the the, the following couple of movies. But by the time we got to the Justice League, I was like, this is falling apart. (laughs) And and there's a whole backstory behind that. We're not going to get too deep into the DC Marvel thing. But as an analogy, the way that Marvel's writing and certain aspects of their production uh, came together it has been the one that had the most driving force oh, and, yeah. the, and the longest la- lasting impact. And it's done good things for the DC universe as well. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Kind of some uh, kickbacks of like, hey, people still like superheroes. Yeah, it's brought it into the mainstream and so on. So as many people have said between House of the Dragon and Rings of Power, and let me make this like the most important thing that I say here is that it's a win for fantasy, period. Oh, yeah. If either show does well, it, it does great for both series in the same way marvel doing well does well for Mm. dc but when it comes down to it yes there's a a deep part of my heart that will always be a dc fanboy but i'm totally in with the mcu now i'm a big marvel fan where i never was before the same thing has happened here i've always been a tolkien fan i've very Mm. reluctantly become a fan of the george martin universe or whatever and now i'm like man dc's got to get it together you know (laughs) and in the same way i think rings of power get it together because we we want this to be good i do Um, think you're right though that both shows are going to feed off each other yeah because they're going to want more content people just coming into yeah but maybe more so rings of power feeding to the others because if people are just starting hot d and they're like, man, this is really good. They're going to go watch Game of Thrones. Right. And then maybe after that great disappointment at the end, <laughs> be like, all right, well, I need some another fantasy series. You know what I mean? Where yeah. I feel like if we're talking feed each other, uh, Hot D is going to feed to Game of Thrones more than Rings of Power. But Rings of Power would feed to Game of Thrones and Hot D a bit more so. We're yeah. kind of... 
Rings of Power could also feed to like the movies. Can we stop talking about feeding hot D's to each We're other? We're gonna and... feed some hot D to each other. <laughs> Stay tuned on History of Art, yeah. a, a family-friendly podcast. <laughs> uh, well, anyways, these are our thoughts, not yours. We'd love to hear what you think on Twitter. Uh, this is gonna wrap it up for the Rings of Power podcast. Uh, I have been Dean. I have, and continue to be Alex. <laughs> And thank you so much to our friend Eric Blair for the first half of this podcast. It's been a journey with you all getting through uh, the uh, show this fall. Thanks for sticking with us. And take care. There will be one final episode in this podcast. It's only going to be a couple minutes long, and it is going to be a musical number from yours truly, (laughs) which uh, I'll explain in the episode. But uh, keep an eye out for... Yeah, Galadriel's uh, song that I'm gonna oh, drop of course, on there. Yeah. Of course, of yeah. course. It's got a story. Fanboy, fanboy. <laughs> it's got a story got behind a story it that behind uh, it. when this podcast first started, I uh, recorded a musical rendition of one of Galadriel's songs from The Lord of the Rings, and I thought I would use it somewhere along the way when we recorded an episode about Galadriel, and it never happened. So instead, I'm gonna drop that as our final little. Farewell, our Namarie, to all the people who have joined us uh, along the way. So, thanks again from Dean. And thanks again from Alex. You are all beautiful, wonderful people. Kisses, love, love, hearts, kisses. (laughs) (laughs) All right, goodbye. Bye.